Welcome to the Independent News Hour. In the headlines today, Andrew Cuomo is resigning as New York governor. The U.S. Senate opens debate on a sweeping $3.5 trillion infrastructure package. And pipeline protests continue in North Brooklyn. Good evening in New York. I'm John Tarleton, editor-in-chief of The Independent, New York City's progressive newspaper and website. Here in New York, Andrew Cuomo's 10-year reign as governor will end in two weeks. Cuomo announced earlier today he will be resigning his post in 14 days amid a mushrooming sexual harassment scandal. Government really needs to function today. Government needs to perform. It is a matter of life and death government operation. And wasting energy on distractions is the last thing that state government should be doing. And I cannot be the cause of that. New York tough means New York loving. And I love New York. And I love you. And I would never want to be unhelpful in any way. And I think that given the circumstances, the best way I can help now is if I step aside and let government get back to governing. Cuomo's announcement comes two days after former Cuomo executive assistant Brittany Comisaro described how Cuomo assaulted her. He walked over, shut the door so hard to the point where I thought for sure someone downstairs must think, they must think if they heard that, what is going on, came back to me and that's when he put his hand up my blouse and cupped my breast over my bra. I exactly remember looking down, seeing his hand, which is a large hand, thinking to myself, oh my God. This is happening. She is one of roughly a dozen women to come forward with allegations against Cuomo. Lieutenant Governor Kathy Hochul is set to become New York's first ever female governor when Cuomo steps down. Cuomo's announcement comes as his allies in the state assembly prepare to impeach him for his actions. Zephyr Teachout challenged Cuomo in the 2014 Democratic Party primary when Cuomo was at the height of his power. Tweeting in response to today's news, she said, quote, I'm sitting in my car overwhelmed with joy, with relief. New York deserves so much better. At last. In other Cuomo-related news, Roberta Kaplan resigned today as chair of Time's Up. Last week's report by Attorney General Letitia James on Cuomogate revealed that Kaplan had assisted Cuomo in drafting a letter to discredit one of Cuomo's accusers. Time's Up was founded in 2017 by Hollywood women to fight sexual abuse and to promote gender equality. We'll talk more about the fall of Andrew Cuomo after the headlines with journalist Ross Barkin, who came out with a scathing new book on Cuomo earlier this summer. Later in the show, we'll also hear from a former public sector union president who battled Cuomo and his politics of austerity many times in the past decade. In Washington, the U.S. Senate passed a $1.2 trillion bipartisan infrastructure package today that focuses on traditional infrastructure priorities like building and repairing roads and bridges and tunnels. It now goes to the House where progressives have vowed to stymie it. They are demanding that Senate Democrats send them a second, more ambitious infrastructure package that includes funding for climate change initiatives, subsidized child care and expanded Medicare coverage. The Senate took a step in that direction today, voting to open debate on a second $3.5 trillion budget resolution championed by Senate Budget Committee Chair Bernie Sanders.
For decades, we have ignored the needs of working families. The very rich have been getting richer, and you got billionaires and large corporations paying nothing in taxes. This bill will substantially raise taxes on the richest people in this country and the largest corporations. So what we are talking, in my view, is about the most consequential piece of legislation for working families in the modern history of America. The push for robust climate legislation in Washington comes one day after a U.N. report came out that said that the world is hurtling toward climate catastrophe if it does not begin to dramatically reduce its carbon emissions. In North Brooklyn, community organizers led a rally over the weekend urging the New York State Public Service Commission not to hike the monthly gas bill for over a million state customers to pay for the controversial North Brooklyn pipeline. The commission is expected to vote on the rate increase Thursday. This is New York Senator Chuck Schumer speaking at the rally on Saturday, followed by local community activist Gabriel Jameson. We're here today for a simple reason. We want to reject National Grid's proposal to ram a gas pipeline this plain and simple. Right? Yeah. There are a lot of reasons why this is a bad idea. First, the commitments we've made together as New Yorkers, we have one of the most progressive climate laws in the country, CLCPA. This pipeline violates the precepts of the CLCPA. How could this We'll get the latest on this battle and the struggle for climate justice in New York State from Lee Zishi of St. Energy in our show's final segment. We'll be back with more after this short break. That was Man Down by Rihanna. I'm John Tarleton. You're listening to the Independent News Hour. I'm joined by my co-host, Amba Gergir. Hi, everybody. My name is Amba, and I am very happy to be here with you and all of our listeners on 99.5 FM and streaming on WBAI.org. For our first segment, we turn to the big news of the day. New York Governor Andrew Cuomo announced his resignation this afternoon amid a mushrooming sexual harassment scandal. Resignation will take effect in 14 days. Lieutenant Governor Kathy Hochul will take his place and become New York's first female governor. Cuomo was also under investigation for his role in covering up the deaths of thousands of nursing home patients who 
perished at the height of the pandemic last year and for using state workers to help him write a book about his incredible leadership during the pandemic, which he received $5 million for writing. Cuomo's resignation marks a stunning fall from grace for the third-term governor, who is himself the son of a former three-term governor, Mario Cuomo. Joining us today to talk about it all is journalist Ross Barkin. He is the author of The Prince, Andrew Cuomo, The Coronavirus, and The Fall of New York, which came out in June from OR Books. Ross is also the author of the Political Currents newsletter on Substack, a must-read for understanding the latest on state and local politics. Ross, thanks for joining us on WBAI Radio. Thank you for having me. Excited to be here on this momentous day. Yes, quite a historic day, and you've chronicled uh, Cuomo's um, activities for many years. First of all, your reaction to Cuomo's resignation and why he threw in the towel at this point when many thought he would fight to the bitter end. I was surprised it came so soon and so swiftly, but it was also the move that just about any other politician would have made because he really had no choice. The the votes were in to both impeach him and convict him in the Senate. It was different than the situation in Washington with Trump where the Republicans were always waiting to exonerate him. Cuomo really had no way out. So it was a question of would he fight it out in the legislature or would he resign? And a lot of people, myself included, wondered whether he would just fight it in the legislature and, and go down in this very bloody uh, you know, legislative war. But that's not the case. And everyone turned against him from Joe Biden on down. And in two weeks, he will not be the governor anymore. And this chapter will be closed. Right. And can you tell us, Ross, a little bit about who Kathy Hochul is, the lieutenant governor who will replace him in those two weeks? So Kathy Hochul is Hochul, a sorry. Buffalo. Oh, yeah. No worries. Is a Buffalo area uh, politician. She's been the lieutenant governor since 2015. She was a former uh, congresswoman. She's a one term congresswoman from Erie County. And she like Cuomo is very much a centrist and, and was once quite conservative in in Congress when she was Erie County clerk. Um, but like a lot of Democrats has drifted more, you know, away from the center and kind of toward the center left. And I, I think of her in a similar vein as Gillibrand, where she came from upstate and had a pretty conservative track record, but is no longer behaving that way. And so I see her as a fairly conventional Democrat who's becoming governor. And she seems to want to run for re-election next year. So that may be another big fight with a lot of ambitious Democrats jumping into the race who also uh, seek what is will be something like an open primary since Hopeful will not have been governor for all that long. And, and beyond the sexual harassment scandal that has brought down Cuomo, can you talk about why he has been uh, such a problematic, if not disastrous, governor for New York uh, throughout his 10-plus years in power? There's a lot to sift through. If you just start with COVID, his handling of COVID was very poor, and New York City was shut down too late, and he hid nursing home deaths and tried to cut funding to public hospitals and 
you know, uh, impose an austerity regime on the state, you know, for, for much of 2020. Uh, so you can, you can start right there and then work your way backwards, you know, where he's really been a triangulating centrist for basically his entire tenure. And he helped Republicans control the state Senate for almost a decade and frustrated a lot of aims of progressives. And beyond that, just from a, from a good government and competence perspective, you know, he ran a, yeah. What what is objectively was a corrupt administration where his closest aide Joe Prococo uh went to prison for running a bribery scheme, you know, out, out of the governor's office in essence, and Cuomo himself was not implicated, but Prococo was really his closest friend in government. And if you look at other metrics like the failures of the MTA, the wasted money there, the poor performance. Um, you know, the general inefficiencies in New York, the horrific board of elections, you, you go, you go on and on. And, and the image Cuomo cultivated was one of supreme competence and it was anything but. And of course, if you take it from a left perspective, he certainly was an obstacle to many goals of the movement. Right. And, and just looking back a little bit on, on his track record, I mean, one moment that really jumped out to me over the years was when the subway system was collapsing in New York City in the summer of 2017. There had been a failure to repair many of the cars. The The signal system was 80 years old, and there were many problems, in the, and they were all uh, culminating. And, and Cuomo was like, who, me? I don't run this system. Why are you looking at me? And uh, he really seemed to be indifferent to actually – uh, administering and running the government and, and seemed to be much more uh, uh, fixated on, on the sort of the political uh, machinations of uh, holding power. He was very interested in power and maintaining control and defeating his opposition. And he was very good at that. What he wasn't good at was the real nuts and bolts of government. Like you said, the MTA was in a state of emergency and the subway system was failing quite dramatically and he pretended he had nothing to do with it, though the subway is a part of the MTA and he controls the MTA. He appoints the chair, he appoints a plurality of board members, and it functions like a state agency under his control. And he, when it was convenient to him, he would invoke his power or control over something, like when he did the ribbon cutting for the second Avenue subway and, and oversaw its construction and made it clear this was his MTA. And then when there was failure, it was not his MTA anymore. And, and these games were played repeatedly for a decade and it got very exhausting for a lot of people. It got exhausting for those who work in politics for ordinary people trying to understand government. And this downfall in many ways, the culmination of all that because the sexual harassment scandal was what drove the possible impeachment and, and the calls for his resignation, but there was so much more than that. Had Cuomo only been accused of sexual harassment and otherwise had this sterling track record as governor and, and cultivated a lot of friends, you could have seen a scenario where he fought his way out of it, where he apologized and moved on. But there was just so much more there um, that the the political class collectively was finished with. Well, also, 
another aspect in, in Cuomo being able to hold power for so many years was the way he was treated in the media. I mean, um, I would in some ways call him a mediocrity. I mean, uh, how did he get so far in, in, in persuading, especially prestige media, uh, that he was this, um, you know, this bastion of, of competence and strength? I do believe members of the media in general were attracted to Cuomo in the sense that he did project strength and power and gravitas. And there was a feeling that even if he wasn't being successful or was mismanaging government, he looked like he was successful and he was good at punishing his enemies. And power is seductive. And it's true for those who work in politics and true for those who cover politics. A lot of journalists wanted access to the Cuomo administration. The only way to get real access was to write favorable stories about him or to massage your stories in such a way where others who he didn't like looked bad too. And when it came to COVID, you had a national media collectively celebrating him because Donald Trump had been such a disaster and he really benefited from this contrast with Trump. And I do believe if Trump had not been president last year, the whole myth of Cuomo, the COVID conqueror, would never have come into being. Right. Ross, and I think you made a good point about um, Cuomo sort of being able to cover up some of his leadership errors with the facade of this, you know, very open to the public, um, well-spoken person. And you even saw that today with his announcements of resignation when he acted like, you know, we heard earlier in the show him saying that he's really doing this for the state of New York. He's stepping down for, for the good of the state of New York so that the legislature doesn't have to focus on this impeachment trial and can just go on with handling COVID and everything else um, without, you know, admitting that that they would have never had to have this, uh, you know, weeks-long process if it weren't for his errors in the first place. But um agree with you there. And speaking of his sort of functioning as, as a very powerful person, that wasn't just a vacuum. Can you talk about all the accomplices he had along the way? Um, and afterwards, could you describe something he cooked up in 2014 called the Women's Equity Party, Equality Party? Oh, yes. So an accomplice is you know, Cuomo had allies within government, staffers who were extremely loyal to him. And, and really, in terms of the sexual harassment scandal, really helped either enable his behavior carried out apologize for it. You know, it starts at Melissa DeRosa at the top. She just resigned. She was the secretary to the governor, which is the second highest ranked position in the state of New York. And she at every turn was Cuomo's enabler and was also like him, um, a very mean person behind the scenes and really picked a lot of fights and attacked a lot of people and really made few friends in government. You had his senior advisors, communications director, which as a party also could be quite nasty and combative in the press. Alfonso David is former counsel who helped find the, the private personnel file for Lindsay Boylan, one of the women who accused Cuomo of sexual harassment and tried to get that disseminated through the media through Rich as a party. Larry Schwartz, who headed up the vaccine distribution efforts despite having no background in public health or science or anything really pertaining to the task at hand. 
And, you know, the, these were the people in his orbit. And beyond that, he didn't really have friends in politics and government. He had people who were afraid of him or people who were, were allied with him out of convenience, like labor unions, like special interest groups, like those who really wanted something out of state government or were afraid something would get taken away from them. And when Cuomo lost power, uh, when this report came out, people started to turn on him. A lot of these special interests turned on him, too, because he was no longer someone who could inspire fear. He was no longer uh, someone who could take something from them. And then in terms of the Women's Equality Party, that was a sham third party created by Cuomo in 2014, specifically to siphon votes away from the Working Families Party, WEP versus WFP. Um, and the party never functioned like a political party. It went defunct four years later, and it was clearly aimed at undercutting the Working Families Party, which has been a critic from the left for most of his tenure. Right, and um, uh, I have some more questions here, but I, I think the wind might be hitting your microphone a little bit, Ross. Um, I don't think yeah. very far, but... Uh, we're hearing a little bit of it. Um, so what new possibilities are opening up for New York state government uh, now that Cuomo will no longer be around? You described him in your most recent um, newsletter as the son that all other bodies in uh, Albany orbited around. Well, now that that son is departing, what are the prospects for a much better state government going forward? Who might be looking to replace him? Well, the prospects are a more conventional governor, a legislature that has a lot more power that will be emboldened to really push for the change it wants to see. There will be a lot of Democrats, I think, vying for the governorship next year. Kathy Hochul will be the incumbent, but she will be new to power and she's probably not going to be able to clear the field. So you'll have a number of Democrats, you might have Tish James, the Attorney General, you might have Tom DiNapoli, the State Controller, Jumani Williams, the New York City Public Advocate, Tom Swazi, a Congressman, and others. Uh, you never know, someone from out of left field could run some billionaire or some other conventional Democrat. So you might see a real Democratic primary for governor uh, with a lot of candidates, which uh, has really not been witnessed in, in a while. And whoever that is, you know, that will be our next governor. What structural changes need to be made so that we don't see them, you know, having the ability to have these same oligarchical forces um, congeal around them, this power vacuum? Yeah, you'll, you'll need campaign finance reform, you know, real reforms cut down on how much money individual donors can give to a gubernatorial candidate. You'll need to see perhaps constitutional changes so the governor has less power in the budget process. And that, that's something Cuomo always dominated in part. That was because of how the constitution is written. You'll need a legislature that's assertive. And for now you will see that because the next governor will be weaker and you have a lot of younger progressive state legislators who really are not afraid of power and really want to make change. So in, in the short term, you're going to see a very different Albany. We'll see what happens in the longer term. Mm. And um, before we go here, uh, is there any prospect that Cuomo might try to run again? He's got 
about $18 million in the bank and his reelection fund. And by avoiding impeachment and conviction, he also avoids being barred from running for statewide office again. So with, with someone like Cuomo, you never say never because he's so driven and, and, and so obsessed with power and, and, and getting it and getting it back. I think it would probably be unlikely at this point because you will have an incumbent governor in Kathy Hochul, and you'll have a lot of other Democrats who are going to be raising money and running. So maybe he thinks I'll enter a crowded split field and win. It, it could happen. I, I think. I mean, there's no may, ranked choice voting in, in state elections. No, there's not. Um, I think it's still going to be hard for him. And, you know, the interest groups in the state, the labor unions, the organizations that, you know, help gather votes are not going to be with him. He is politically damaged. We'll see. You never know with him. I'll, I'll say that much. You, play you the role never quite of, predict uh, what he's going to do. Yeah, play the role of uh, martyr to left-wing cancel culture. That's That seems to be something he thinks about a lot, yeah. All righty, well, We'll leave it there, but uh, Ross Barkin, uh, author of The Prince, Andrew Cuomo, The Coronavirus, and The Fall of New York. Thank you so much for joining us on this uh, historic day to talk about what it all means. Yeah, thank you for having me. I appreciate it. You bet. And uh, Ross also has an excellent uh, newsletter on Substack, uh, Political Currents. Uh, uh, you can find out more about that. Uh, he's also on Twitter, at Ross Barkin, uh, uh, excellent political journalist here in New York. And uh we will be back uh, after this short break with more on the departure of Andrew Cuomo. We're going to talk uh, with a former uh, public sector uh, union leader who battled with Cuomo over many years.
That was Delphine by Kaja Bonet. And welcome back to the Independent News Hour here on WBAI 99.5 FM. I'm John Tarleton, editor-in-chief of the Independent, New York City's progressive newspaper and website. Also here with uh, the Indies, Amber Gagarian. Thanks, John. Before we continue, I want to urge everybody who can do so to please give to WBAI, your community radio station. You can call 212-209-2950 to do so, or go online to give, the number 2, WBAI.org. That is 212-209-2950. Or give online at give, the number two, WBAI.org. We appreciate it very much, and we need it. Thanks. Yeah, again, that number is uh, 212-209-2950. You can also go online at go online to give, number two, WBAI.org. You can sign up uh, to become a monthly sustainer, become a WBAI buddy for as little as $10 per month or more. And you'll be eligible for all sorts of uh, excellent benefits. You can also make a generous one-time contribution uh, at give number two wbai.org or uh, phone in to two one two two zero nine two nine five zero. When you give, you make this program and all the other programming on WBAI possible. Community radio. Uh, we need our communities to support this and, and keep shows like this on the air. Shows where you hear from guests that you would never hear from in the corporate media perspectives that you don't normally get. Also lots of great cultural pro- and music programming on WBAI. Um, really unique radio station and it's all made possible by our listeners. And um, let's see, we, um, we may have a, a slight glitch with um, bringing our second guest on. Um, but I think what we're going to do we'll, uh, we uh looking forward uh, to hearing uh, in a little bit from uh, uh, Barbara Bowen, uh, public sector union president, represents the, represented the faculty union at CUNY for many years and uh, battled many times with uh, Andrew Cuomo uh, against his uh, austerity regime. But um, I think we, we – oh, here we go. She's uh, um, about to join us in just a moment. So, um, yeah, you know, CUNY – uh, part of the public sector here in New York that was really suffocated over the last uh, 10 years or so under Cuomo. And uh, Barbara Bowen was a union president who was um, frequently in Albany fighting for more funding for CUNY and, and more support for the public sector in general. Uh, Barbara, are you uh, with us? Yes. Great. Thank you for joining us on, uh, on 99.5 FM on this uh, historic day. And um, uh, for starters, just your reaction to uh, Andrew Cuomo's uh, announcement today. Thank you. Thank you so much. I'll try again. So, yes, of course, I was relieved, uh, like everybody else, I think, who cares about not having a government where there's uh, abuse of many people and uh, outright sexual abuse and sexual harassment. Absolutely. Um, You know, I think that's very important. It was long overdue. and, you know, it's still pretty shocking what you hear and what you read in the report about Governor Cuomo. Um, shocking that those things went on for so long, but not shocking to anybody who's been watching Cuomo because his m- mode of operation 
with everybody was bullying, intimidation, abuse, humiliation, all the signs of a classic abuser. Um, so uh, I think it's a good thing. But the question is whether there will actually be uh, a change to the, in some ways, the most far-reaching problems that uh, Governor Cuomo set up and structures, and that's what needs to change in addition to behavior. If we just bring in better behavior and a woman as a governor who I hope will not in, be engaged in ex, any sexual harassment or other kinds of abuse, that's not enough. There are deeper things that need to change. Such as? Well, I think the, the biggest thing is uh, in the fiscal area. I mean, Governor Cuomo I heard Ross Barkin earlier and uh, talking about how Cuomo managed to present himself in answer to your really good question, how he managed to present himself as the darling of the media and even the progressive media. And partly he did that through the techniques of intimidation that uh, Barkin talked about, but also because he spoke to and satisfied the agenda of the financial class and the ruling class. And at the same time, he presented himself as a progressive through certain non-economic policies um, and what really needs to change. And I think Kathy Hochul, you know, she is, doesn't have a history as a progressive on uh, economic issues, but the main thing that needs to change is the relentless austerity um, economics of Cuomo's regime. Those lifted a tiny bit in this last budget and that showed that it can happen. So for me, that would be the biggest change, that punitive, defunding of the public sector, of working people, and uh, the investment in pet projects and uh, the financial class. And what has that austerity looked like at CUNY? Uh, well, it's been CUNY. I, I don't know if you said this while we were struggling with the audio, but uh, CUNY, the City University of New York, uh, with its 275,000 students, has been systematically underfunded by this governor. Uh, I would say SUNY has also. And if there's really one thing that I think Hochul would have a chance, given her political positioning, to do, that would be, even in the short term, to end the disinvestment in CUNY and SUNY and to turn that around completely. I mean, we saw in this last budget, we saw that New York could tolerate some higher taxes, $4.3 billion in higher taxes, were uh, implemented in this last budget. People didn't flee the state. The state didn't fall apart. There's more uh, tax, progressive tax uh, changes, increases that should be put in place. We saw that the public schools were finally funded, you know, phase in of $4 billion. The same thing should happen for CUNY and SUNY. And, th and those higher taxes were overwhelmingly drawn from the, the rich, correct? Absolutely. Absolutely, but not enough. I mean, the the personal income tax could have gone further. There were other taxes that um, the progressive coalition of Invest in Our New York was proposing and putting forward. And uh, many of the taxes that were enacted could have gone much further. And I think we saw that in the last budget. So, um, you know, I, I look at Hochul's record. I don't see somebody who is um, a progressive fiscally, but I think Cuomo really managed in a, a way that was devastating to pull the wool over people's eyes and suggest that he was progressive on all fronts um, when, in fact, he was regressive economically. When he first came into office and he faced a deficit, the way he got rid of that 
was by reducing the pension for public sector workers, bringing in a tier six in pensions. Um, and despite that, he had the support of many unions, not ours, not the teachers unions across the state, but um, he brought in higher pensions. So workers funded that deficit and he used it to invest in real estate development. Right. And, and you've dealt with four governors over the years during your time as the leader of um, the professional staff Congress. And uh, like we were asking Ross earlier, what, what do you think needs to be done to ensure that we don't just circle back into the same patterns of, of, of this sort of uh, pharaonic emperor governor system uh, yeah. where, where so much power is concentrated in one person and, and they're able to, you know, erect various pay to play schemes uh, for access to state government that then, you know, fill their reelection coffers and really discourage competition. Um, your, your thoughts on that? Um, good question. I think there's a real danger that politics will in New York will just congeal back into the old patterns um, right now because there will be so much focus on the individual person, Hochul, um, the fact that she's a woman, the fact that she's from the western part of the state. And I think that there's a real danger that the um, relief of having her in office and the media attention to sort of superficial aspects of her newness will occlude the deeper problem, which is what you described, the, um, the structural problems in Albany, and as I would say, this pattern of fiscal austerity. So uh, we heard Ross Barkin talk about this too. The legislature is so disempowered in New York um, that uh, the, the budget is decided by three men in a room. Well, now it'll be two women and one man, but that's that doesn't make it acceptable. Is that, that the solution? Make, right. That is not the solution. Um, the solution is much more genuine access for advocacy groups, um, a, a different system, more progressive taxation. I think that's the basis of it. It's not just personalities or patterns in the relations to the legislature, but I think it is the um, exclusion of um, advocacy groups and the, the superficial inclusion, but the profound exclusion and the unwillingness to do anything that would upset the millionaire class, the billionaire class, 118 billionaires in New York State, they got richer during the pandemic. They got $70 billion more in wealth during the pandemic from our money. So that has to change. Yeah, if only we could turn some of those one percenters into two percenters. But um, <laughs> uh, we have to go, go here in a minute. But uh, last question, uh, what can the labor movement do differently? I mean, so many unions really um, – acted as supplicants to, to Cuomo, came to him on bended knee, and were willing, ready, really willing to do almost anything to maintain that proverbial seat at the table and and, and really were a part of the problem. And the PSC wasn't, but th there is that tendency in the labor movement to sort of, you know, seek, uh, you know, preferential status with uh, insiders like Cuomo. What how, yeah. Will that change? I hope Can so. that change? I hope so. But unions make a mistake if they think the only way to go is the insider game. Um, you know, please Cuomo, because he is so vindictive. So you better not cross him. You better not demonstrate against him. I think that is absolutely the wrong approach. 
uh, there are millions of unionized workers in this state. They are in every community, every working class and middle class community. We should be in alliance with those communities, those uh, movements. Look at the incredible movement this summer, last summer of um, anti-racist action. The labor unions should look to those movements, not to thinking that our only route to achieving anything is not to displease the governor. To repeat that would be simply to reinstate the politics that got us to the point where, as you say, we're supplicants and uh, are constantly, constantly seeing ourselves defunded. And the other thing I would just add quickly is that the labor movement has to act as a movement of the unions together. Um, labor has been so um, reduced and legislated against that uh, I think the reaction of many unions has been, let's just get what we can for our members only. Have to think about the whole working class because that's our strength and that's the only way that we will have strength. We are many, they are few, as Shelley said. We've got to start acting that way. Okay, we'll have to leave it there. Barbara Bowen, former president of the Professional Staff Congress, CUNY, thank you so much for joining us on WBAI Radio this evening. Thank you both. And also, I just want to note, uh, 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 talking about confrontational uh, unionism, uh, Barbara was arrested outside Andrew Cuomo's office in 2011, uh, about a year after he took uh, power, uh, not uh, willing to back down. So thank you again for joining us, and uh, we'll, uh, we'll stay in touch. Great. Thank you. And arrested again outside his New York City office in a die-in. Okay. Consistency. <laughs> All right. You. We'll be back after the uh, short break with our uh, next guest. Al presto numero nueve, ya lo van a confesar. Estaré siendo en la celda con el cura del penal. Dientes de amanecer, la vida le han de quitar, porque mató a su mujer y un amigo desleal. That was El Preso Número Nueve by Joan Baez, and I'm Amagir Garian. You're listening to the Independent News Hour on WBAI 99.5 FM. Now turning quickly to our third segment, in North Brooklyn, National Grid has begun construction on a controversial new liquid natural gas pipeline, which would bring highly volatile fracked gas from Pennsylvania to New York. Its opponents see the $185 million project as both a public health hazard and bad energy policy, as it would further lock the city into a dependence on natural gas. Residents' opposition has temporarily stopped construction of phase five of the pipeline and parts of the liquid natural gas expansion, but National Grid has not given up on these projects and plans to pursue them in addition to raising monthly bills um, on New Yorkers so they can pay for their project. Over 50 elected officials from across New York have signed a letter urging the Public Service Committee to reject this national grid hike and urging the committee to also um, comply with New York's Climate Leadership and Community Project Protection Act, 
which mandates that New York move off fossil fuels to rapidly reduce greenhouse gas emissions by 2030. Now, this project is obviously an infraction to, to that law. Um, and here to speak with us about all of this is Lee Zishi of Sane Energy Project, a group that is committed to replacing fracked gas infrastructure with community-led sustainable energy. And Lee has been extremely active in, in this whole opposition to the pipeline movement. Welcome, Lee. Hey, thanks so much for having me. Yeah, absolutely. So on August 12th, um, the New York State Public Service Commission is expected to vote on the rate hike we just talked about. So National Grid wants to, you know, uh, charge more basically to us, you or me, anybody who has gas in order to finance this project. Um, if if they if it's approved, they'll be able to do this um, and cover other sort of fracking investments they have so what will happen if if it's not approved how how and and will the construction continue does this vote affect construction or just their ability to do the rate hike yeah so this vote is just on whether or not they can raise our rates to pay for the pipeline um, so, you know, it would be an incredible victory if the PSC on Thursday says, no, National Grid, you're not going to get back. Um, you know, they've been asking for $185 million. They've spent 129 of that so far, $129 million. Wow. Um, so that's what they want back from us. Um, you know, there are some other projects within the, the joint proposal that's being voted on that we're against. Um, but it's one of the problems with this pipeline, um, the North Brooklyn pipeline, is that there really actually hasn't been any environmental oversight. Um, so it wouldn't necessarily stop construction, but National Grid only builds projects to get money. That's actually how they run their business. They don't even make money by selling us gas. Um, they make money by building projects and getting investments, um, a return on investment from that capital investment. Um, so, you know, if National Grid's not going to get their money, um, they're not going to continue. I would assume they would not continue and build phase five um, because why would they do that they only they only build pipelines to to make money right and and you know we said earlier that because of the residents opposition phase five has been halted um is that is the, is is it can it how can it go ahead or should we expect it to go ahead notwithstanding the rate hike yeah so what is in um this rate hike proposal um you know there's this the state and National Grid have been behind closed doors for over a year now negotiating a proposal, and that's what's actually being voted on on Thursday. And so in that proposal, there's some kind of provisions that are kind of like the nod to the community, right? You know, at one point we were at the table in those negotiations. We actually walked out of negotiations because we felt it was a cover for National Grid continuing construction on phases one through four. Um, so if that proposal is approved, phase five um, has to go through some more approval processes. There'll be another public hearing. Um, if National Grid wants to get their money back, they also have to meet certain energy efficiency standards. Um, you know, they're things that they should be doing anyway, honestly, looking at greenhouse gas emissions. Um, and so say that all got approved by the Public Service Commission, um, National Grid could then move forward. Um, but, you know, what we saw in October of last year um, when they were working on phase four is that the community really didn't let them finish. I mean, they just were able to finish phase four, um, but there was a lot of direct action um, and people shutting down construction. So. I think National Grid would have a very hard time building phase five. Right. And speaking of the community, just unfortunately, we have about, you know, 30, 40 seconds left here. This is going to be our last question. Just talk about um, the importance of, of community 
participation in, in this movement and, and how others can get involved. Yeah, so, you know, the people who could have stopped this, Governor Cuomo, Mayor de Blasio, have been completely asleep at the wheel um, and faux climate leaders. Um, so it's been community groups, predominantly black and brown indigenous people who have put their bodies on the line to shut down construction. There's been a lot of just regular citizens involved in this rate hike and fighting back. Um, and what we've done now is we've launched a gas bill strike. We're actually saying, you know, we don't have a whole lot of faith in New York State coming up on Thursday. Um, and we're just straight up refusing to pay for the pipeline. So community members have been reaching out to each other, getting other people to strike. We now have over 250 people striking. Um, so if people want to get involved in this this fight, um, they can go to nobnbkpipeline.org slash strike. Um, if you're a National Grid customer, you can join the strike. If you're not, maybe you're you know, in Manhattan and pay Con Ed. Uh, we need a lot of help um, reaching out to people um, and letting them know what's happening. Well, thank you so much, Lee Zishi from Sane Energy Project. We have to leave it here, but do follow Sane Energy Project or No North Brooklyn Pipeline on Twitter for updates on all of this. Thank you so much. Thanks so much for having me. Okay, that's going to be uh, it for uh, tonight's show. And the Independent News Hour will be back same time uh, next uh, Tuesday. Thanks for joining us and thanks for supporting WBAI.